Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and today I'm hosting New Books in Math. New Books in Math is a new channel on the New Books Network, and I'm happy to inaugurate it. Even though I am not a mathematician myself, I'm married to one, so I feel like that somehow makes me qualified to do this. In actual fact, I do know a little bit about statistics, which is something we'll be talking about today, because we are very lucky to have here on our first podcast, Leila Schneps and Coralie Colmez on the show, and we'll be talking about their terrific new book, Math on Trial, How Numbers Get Used and Abused in the Courtroom. I read this book and I think it's absolutely terrific because it shows how mathematics has real-world significance that you can directly see. This is sort of beyond the behind-the-scenes stuff that you uh, may be familiar with. But uh, in this case, when it's used in trials or in legal matters, what we might call forensic mathematics. I don't even know if there is forensic mathematics. Maybe there should be. We'll talk about that. But here it actually matters. And I think that Leila and Coralie have done a terrific job of suggesting that we might want to take it a little bit more seriously. So I want to congratulate them on writing the book. Um, Perhaps you folks could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Leila, why don't you begin? Okay, so I am 51. I grew. I was born in the States. I went to school in the States, in Boston, near Boston, actually. I graduated from Harvard, and I went to Europe to do my graduate work for fun, because I thought that would be interesting, and stayed, because you know how it is. You, you meet somebody, and I met mm-hmm. Coralie's dad. Mm-hmm. And so I've been there ever since. And now I'm a professor at the University of Paris. I'm a professor of mathematics. Mm -hmm. I have a research position. And I usually work in pure mathematics. Mm -hmm. However, I've always been very um, interested by crime, both fictional crime and true crime. So I'm a big reader of mystery stories. Mm -hmm. And I've been a long-term follower of certain... um, certain real crimes that are quite a bit in the news. Some of them are in the book. Mm-hmm. And somehow, uh, one day, uh, two or three years ago, the two things clicked together. And I came up with the idea of writing the book about mathematics and crime. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a terrific idea. Coralie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, hi. So I'm 25, and I'm Leila's mom. I'm not sure if someone has actually said that. Yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm Leila's daughter. I'm yes, right. Um, uh, so I was born in Paris and went to school there. But then um, when I finished school, I went to Cambridge University in England to do math. Mm-hmm. And I graduated about three years ago. And um, and when I graduated, I had, I had this very cool job, but it was only a temporary job. It was one year. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. And then when we were talking with uh, my mom... Um, she thinks that everyone should write a book, and so <laughs> so we were thinking about you know what books to write, and we yeah she we came up with this idea sort of together, and then we wrote it. It was actually quite nice because I I was in um, Argentina when we were writing it on on a long holiday, several months. Mm-hmm. So um, 
So yeah, it was it was good to have you know something smart to do also. Mm-hmm. Well, that's terrific. I mean, it's wonderful. As I said in the pre-interview, that a mother and daughter could write a book together. I think that's an unusual thing to begin with, and it speaks of what I think is probably a good relationship. I won't weigh in on that, nor do I know the, <laughs> but I do know the probability of it, and it's very low. <laughs> At least that's, that's my probably false estimate of it. So let's get um, right into the book. Why did you guys write this book? I mean, what, what actually sparked it? Uh, Layla mentioned a little bit that she was interested in some of this stuff, but what is the sort of cause behind this book? Layla, why don't well, you go ahead? Yeah, for me, what it is is I, I, I was following several cases that were really bothering me because, you know, Sometimes uh, the things going on in trials are things I can actually understand. When they start involving certain kinds of probability calculation and analysis, I can really understand what's going on. And then I was starting to see things that that were not good. Mm-hmm. And I'm not the only one by far. Other mathematicians and statisticians were writing articles about some of these stories. And I, for the first time, I, I said to myself, I have to do something. It's not enough just to follow and to read and maybe to blog. I really need to join the movement of the very small, still brand new movement of mathematicians and statisticians who want to do something about this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Coralie, would you like to continue that? Yeah, I, I'm, I, I just, I remember that around the time when we started thinking about the idea, we, we'd been reading a lot of popular science books like, um, you know, bad science and freakonomics and that type of thing. And, and we, were, we were thinking, you know, there, there isn't really something like that that exists for maths. And we were just um, throwing around some ideas. And then since, uh, well, since my mom follows so many of these cases, we realized that a lot, a lot of the things we were thinking about that we could talk in the book were criminal trials. And so we decided to focus mostly on those. Mm-hmm. And we found, we, we did a bit more research and found that there were actually very many that, you know, very many of these things that had happened. Mm-hmm. So, also material. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's intrinsic to the way in which our judicial system works, particularly in trials, because it all has to do with probability, even in cases of things like, let's say, eyewitness testimony. We know from experiments that eyewitness testimony is valuable in a certain percentage of the cases. Now, right. you can't get away. We live in a probabilistic world. It just mm-hmm. There's no way of getting around it. And in cases like this, you're always, you know, when you talk about a circumstantial case, it rests on multiple probabilities. It's sort of like, you know, Bayesian paradise. It's because you have it, to, it is, it is. You really have to know the situation well in order to get a good handle on the statistics. And, um, and, and that, that can be a tricky thing because as you, as you point out in the book, in many cases, some uh, statistical calculations are very, what some people call counterintuitive. They, they don't seem uh, at first to make a lot of sense, but then when you sort of explain it to people and you do the steps, then it does make sense. So let's talk a little bit about one of the things I really like about the book, and I really suggest people read it uh, precisely for this reason, is that it's so well laid out. Uh, you talk about just a series of mathematical errors, and there are nine of them. Let's just begin with the first one, multiplying non-independent probabilities. I know why you didn't use the word stochastic. <laughs> <laughs> we, we also chose not to use the word base. Yeah, right. That's true. He shows up right at the end. So, yeah, yeah, well, right. we minimized him. Yeah. So what, what's the problem with multiplying non-independent probabilities, and uh, what did it do to Sally Clark? Um, Mama, you want to start this one? No, no, go ahead. Okay. Well, um, the, the multiplying non-dependent probabilities will give you a, a final property that's much smaller than what it should actually be. So you have to be very, very careful 
uh, when you have two separate events that happen, you have to, before multiplying their probabilities, their individual probabilities, you have to be very careful that they are actually independent. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what didn't happen in the Sally Clark case. So Sally Clark was, um, was this woman in, in England who had two small children die of um, sudden death, so unexplained death. And the, the, um, the special the, um, expert um, witness at the trial was Sir Roy Meadow, who, well, he was starting this big campaign against child abuse. And he, he um, you know, started from all these studies with, about um, sudden infant death syndrome and the probability that one of them would happen in different types of family. And he said that in Sally's type of fa family, it would be, something like one in 8,000. And he just um, squared that probability of one sudden infant death um, to find the probability of two sudden infant deaths. And he found, obviously, a very, very small probability, which he said must mean that Sally had actually killed her two children because it was so improbable that it would have happened naturally. But, I mean, he did this in the face of so many studies that, that follow families where one sudden infant death has already happened and show how, how much more probable it is that another one will happen. All, all these studies, you know, definitely show that those two events are not independent and no one knows exactly what factors may cause these, but there are probably some genetic ones, some, you know, social ones. Uh, so they are definitely not two independent events. So he definitely shouldn't have just squared the probability. Mm -hmm. There's something we would call a, a, a confounding variable here. There's something lurking in the background that that, yeah, that exactly. causes this, and people weren't looking at it. I mean, in the simple case of a toinkas or a you know a fair dice, then yeah. these are independent things, and you can just multiply the probabilities. But here we have, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of a really good example. Um, you know, if you have a, a football team, that is in the English sense, um, that has a super football player on it and they win one game, it's not a 50% chance they're going to win the next one because they have somebody really good on the team. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. And you've got to take that into consideration. You know, Man United right, wins right. more often than not. So, what ahead. was so wrong about what Sir Roy Meadow did in particular was that he, when he squared those probabilities, he was acting as though a sudden infant death syndrome is a totally random event. It yeah. can strike anywhere. But at the same time, he used a 1 in 8,000 figure, which only is the rate of sudden infant death syndrome in a family of Sally's social class. So right. she was a lawyer, and you know, she and her husband earned a good living, and they were non-smokers, and they were not under 26. And these are all factors that have been shown to play a role in sudden infant death syndrome. But that very fact means that it isn't a random occurrence. So mm -hmm. that's all the more reason not to treat it as a random occurrence. And in fact, you get a double SIDS in England once every couple of years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But he didn't, he, he tried to treat it as independent and non-independent at the same time in the worst possible way for Sally. Yeah, right. Well, one of the things I explain to people and my students when I talk about statistics is that really improbable things happen all the time. Sure. You see what I mean? Like it's sure. incredibly rare things happen all the time. Because you have to multiply by the size of the population right, and exactly. we're 6 billion people on earth. Right. right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So let's go on to error number two, uh, which I am guilty of all the time, uh, <laughs> usually tendentiously. Um, and that is unjustified estimates. How, how did unjustified estimates affect the life of Janet Collins? Who wants to go first? 
Uh, well, I'll go ahead. So this is actually a case which, if it hadn't actually sent people to jail, would be really funny. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. what happened was... It's my, it's my favorite one, just because it's so funny. It's a great story, although people did jail time for it, which is a bit sad. But what happened was that some eyewitnesses to a crime, and the crime was robbing of a handbag from an elderly woman who was thrown to the ground and her hip was broken. So I'm not saying that this was a minor crime. Mm -hmm. But anyway, there were a couple of eyewitnesses who saw very briefly the girl who stole the bag run by and a guy pick her up in a car and drive off. And they noticed that the girl was blonde with a ponytail, the guy was black with a mustache and beard, and the car was yellow. But since no one had any clue who these people could be, what police did is to search all around the area for a couple matching that description. So they found such a couple and then they wanted to prove that that was the right couple. And there was no other evidence really at all. I mean, the the couple had a kind of alibi, but it wasn't really precise to the minute and they could have squeezed in a robbery. They, there was just no evidence, but no real alibi either. So in the absence of everything, the prosecutor came up with this bright idea of phoning the local university and calling for a mathematician who came to render service to, to society without knowing what he was getting into. And up there on the stand, he was given some probabilities and told to multiply them. So that's all the mathematician had to do. He wasn't given the chance to, to talk about multiplying independent probabilities. <laughs> and the probabilities were probability of a woman having a blonde ponytail, probability of her husband being black, probability of a car being yellow, probability of a guy with a beard, a mustache. Only the probabilities for all of these different features that the prosecutor gave came off the top of his head. He said, okay, let's say one car in 10 is yellow. I, I should say this was taking place in 1964. And this was the, really the very beginning of the use of probability in trials and people starting to both use it and protest against it. So let's say uh, one woman in four will wear a ponytail and so forth. And he, here, he said to the witness, take these numbers and multiply them. <laughs> and then, of course, the probability came to be you know, one in several million. Mm-hmm. So then he said, okay, jury, it's got to be them. Can't be anybody else. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't even calculating the right probability. He was calculating the probability that such a couple would exist in the Los Angeles area. Mm-hmm. It's not the probability that this couple you've got in front of you is that couple or the only couple of this kind. Mm-hmm. And anyway, he just estimated the probabilities without any justification right. at he, all. He, pull, he pulled them out of... His head. Thin air, let's say yes, that. I, I wanted to yes, say something else. In the but, department uh, before, yeah. <laughs> before writing them down. And he also multiplied them, which like the previous era, they're not at all independent. Like a, a guy having a mustache and a beard is not really independent. No. So he did everything wrong, basically. Yeah, right. Poor guy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Coralie, do you want to weigh in on this one? Since you like it? Yeah. Um, I, I just... Um, I think there's a particularly, this has nothing to do with the maths or anything, but I think there's a particularly funny bit when the the defense lawyer is, he actually has understood that the probabilities aren't independent. And uh, he tries to explain it in a very funny way. He, he says stuff like, it's not independent for a blonde woman to be with a, to be with a black man because blonde women are much more, um, you know, much more, daring than brunette <laughs> <laughs> and he's pulling and basically behind that he's pulling statistics out of thin air too yeah. it's much but, more yeah. likely that about you know so everybody's basically yeah, making course. it up <laughs> yeah all right yeah that's not... so, but it was early days in the 1960s sure no i understand but she you know but, but these people did some jail time though yeah they did jail time yeah and then on appeal the this uh, judgment was canceled 
And the, the guy was let out of jail. As for the girl, I think she'd finished her jail time already. She didn't have that long a period, so she was already out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, it is a sad thing. So anyway, math error number three, trying to get something from nothing. And the, the case of Joe Sneed, the wonderfully named Joe Sneed, uh, who would like yeah. to take a crack at uh, talking about that one. Um, so th- this one is actually um, fairly similar to the previous one. And in fact, the prosecutor for this need case had phoned the prosecutor for our previous case. So these aren't independent probabilities. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an imitation. <laughs> yeah, it is. So yeah, he had phoned the prosecutor for the previous case uh, because he'd read about the, what had happened in the papers and thought this sounded interesting and he could prob- you know, maybe use um, the same technique. Mm-hmm. So what happened here is that um, this elderly couple was found dead and uh, they were found dead by their son, Joe Sneed. And um, the, the, he, he wasn't a suspect in the beginning, but eventually when the police um, looked inside his car, because they, they did have to treat him as a suspect as he had found the bodies. Mm-hmm. So they looked inside his car. And they found um, a receipt that wasn't to the name of Joe Sneed. It was to the name of Robert Crossett. And um, when they had found that receipt, they were able to then find evidence that a certain, well, a man called Robert Crossett had done various things like buy a pistol and stayed in in various inns on the way between where Joe Sneed lived and where, where his parents lived. And so what they were attempting to do was to prove that the Robert Crossett who had done all these things was all the same person to the Robert Crossett whose receipt was in Joe Sneed's car. And that um, the fact that the receipt was in Sneed's car indicated that he had actually used the name Robert Crossett. Mm. Um, and so to do that, they, you know, there were various probabilities. So Robert Crossett was described as having brown hair, brown eyes. So they um, found the probabilities of having brown hair and brown eyes. And then his, height was described so this was all when he had bought, bought the pistol because they when you buy a pistol you have to um, get described in the register and um, there was one property in particular which was of the name of the, the property of the name Crossett actually being used and to calculate that property they looked in a few um, phone books from the area so quite a few of them uh, and they didn't find any Crossets anywhere and so um, the the prosecutor just sort of said, right, well, we can't find any any of them, so let's say the property is one in a million. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, is, is completely, it's completely ridiculous to sort of try to make up a property like that when you yeah. have no, you know, no indication of anything and you yeah. have no idea if process would maybe be very, you know, a very common name in another part of the country or... You know, something or like some that. Town, you know, were they all one big family where they, they weren't looking in that particular phone book? Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. So he was just making it up too. He yeah. completely made it up. And the funny part of the story is that he, he had these phone books brought in from various places around the Southwest United States. And everyone in court was looking at them, including Joe Sneed himself and the defenders and the prosecutors and the witnesses. Everybody was like flipping through phone books, looking up crossets. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, it must have been strange, but no one found any, and so we just made up this number. Yeah, that's man, that's uh, that's that's bad. <laughs> Let's just say yeah, it. That's just, yeah, that's but it, like bad. I said, it was early days, though. Yeah, right. So a little yeah. bit later, here we come to some um, uh, uh, medical evidence, and this one I, I thought was really interesting and, and pertinent. And that is a math error number four, the double experiment, mm-hmm. um, which gets into a really tricky thing, and that is 
the uh, probability of false positives and false negatives. It's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing. I've dealt with it just a little bit in the case of, of Meredith Kirchner. Who'd like to talk about her? <laughs> I'll talk about her. Okay. So, first of all, it's it's I've noticed while researching the case of Meredith Kircher that the mathematics used for DNA analysis is not advanced enough. It's very crude, in fact. I really, really think that DNA specialists need to hire a bunch of good <laughs> statisticians. No, seriously. One thing that they use, and this was repeated many, many times during both trials of Amanda Knox and her boyfriend, is that, uh, so you know when you run a DNA sample, you get a graph with peaks, and those peaks are located in the places of the given individual, and they're very different from individual to individual, and that's how you get an identification. The more DNA you have, the higher the peaks. If your DNA is very, if the, the sample you're looking at is tiny, the peaks are low. And the trouble, they say, is that the machine that analyzes these samples pr- pr- produces background noise. So it's got a little row of tiny peaks at the bottom of the graph always. Mm-hmm. But when your real peaks are low, they could be background peaks. Right. You have to distinguish them. And what you need to have is a statistical analysis that, sh- that studies the peaks you have with respect to the average background peaks to pick out which ones are the real ones. Mm-hmm. But they don't have this. All they say is... Okay, below a certain height, really kind of arbitrary, below 50 RFU, relative fluorescent units, this is how you measure the height of DNA peaks. Uh, we'll just not look at them. We won't count them. Mm-hmm. And this is terrible. because <clears throat> So they took a swab of this knife that was found in Amanda Knox's boyfriend's apartment where Meredith Kircher had never been. It was carried to the lab. A lot of people have said this could be contamination, but when you think about it, it was found in his house where she never was by white-suited people with gloves. It was bagged, they said, in a paper envelope that wasn't the right kind, but, you know, it didn't have Meredith's DNA on it either. It was brought to this lab, which was full of DNA of all the many criminals that are tested in this lab. So if any contamination got onto that knife, you can't see how it could have been Meredith's of all people, the Mm -hmm. person that was being tested for. So uh, for me, I'm very inclined to believe that the swab of the knife came from the knife, because where on earth would the contamination have come from? And so it's Meredith's DNA, and the, but the quantity was tiny, tiny, and so the peaks are low. But it just so happens that in that sample, the background peaks are very low, and the peaks of Meredith stand out very clearly. And what we did in the book is we laid it over a proper graph of her DNA from a good sample, and they are identical, mm-hmm. except the good sample, sample has high peaks, and this sample has low peaks. Mm-hmm. Now, what's really hard to do because the science simply hasn't caught up to DNA analysis yet is to give a probability that the low copy number, this is the tiny sample, really is Meredith, given the accepted unreliability of this tiny kind of sample because of the background peaks. Mm -hmm. It's hard to quantify it because you look at the graph here, you're going to say it's 99.9% sure that it's her. It is her. You look at the rule that says you cannot use peaks under 50 you have to say, well, we can't distinguish these peaks from background peaks. Mm-hmm. And the whole science of, of calculating the probability of whether background peaks could show up exactly in the places where our peaks are, that's a science that hasn't completely been done yet. Mm-hmm. So I took a ballpark figure of about 80% certainty that it was hers. It looks exactly like hers, right? But I've, I cannot accept it to be as reliable as a full-size sample. Mm-hmm. So the point here is we have this sample – and it's, I'm taking this ballpark figure of 80% reliable than hers, although really I believe it's more reliable than that. But, you know, there are this, there's this limit uh, due to pres- the present state of the science. And the judge in the appeal trial of Amanda Knox and her boyfriend, Raffaele, 
was asked to retest the knife because nowadays, which is five years after the original, well, the appeal was four years after the crime, there are techniques that can analyze even smaller samples than at the time. So even if one cell was left, it could be tested now. Mm-hmm. And they said no. And he said no, and he explains his reasoning very clearly because uh, in Italy, when you judge a case like this, you have to write a very complete explanation of your decision, which is great because then we get to understand what they're thinking. And he explicitly explains why he refused this test. And he said, if you have a test, but you, we can't accept it as reliable because it's too, too, too small, the sample's too small, and we do a second test and the sample's even smaller, it's not going to be any more reliable, so we haven't gained anything. There's no point doing a second test. Mm-hmm. And this is completely, completely wrong from a mathematical point of view. If you do a test and get a result that's 80% reliable and you do a second test and get the same result, you increase your reliability to way over 90%. Mm -hmm. And of course you should have done a second test. It's clear both to double check that the DNA really did come from the knife and not contamination and to increase the reliability of the result. Mm -hmm. So his reasoning there is, is Wrong. And to me, he made a great error not allowing a second test. Yeah, this one is baffling to me because statisticians, I mean, people know a little bit about survey techniques. And mm-hmm. statisticians will often take two or three samples. Well, of course. And compare them just to see, you know, just to see exactly how they're doing. And it's, it's intuitive that you would do this. And I, yeah. yeah, this one, that, that one is mind You know, if you hadn't written explicitly a new sample would still be unreliable, I would never have believed that was his reasoning. Yeah. I would have thought he was thinking in much more general terms, all the other evidence shows he's innocent or whatever he wanted to say. But he wrote this out completely explicitly. And, and when I saw that, you know, I was already, I was, this was while we were writing the book. And I was hesitating about to use the Amanda Knox case for a different reason. I was really annoyed to continually hear in the news in the States about this, this DNA sample being called a really poor match for Meredith, a 1% match. There's more chance that uh, it could be my DNA than hers. And I had this graph in front of me, and this is is her DNA, and it's ridiculous. And I was actually wondering whether to put that in the book, but I wasn't going to do it because it's the media. It's not the trial. Right, right. But it is a misuse of math. Right. Once they get out into the... uh press, then all bets are off to use it. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> the judge came along and yeah. said this really just astounding piece of misreasoning. And yeah. so so the case got into the book. Yeah, right. Well it's a it's a good one and it's a sad one. Um so yeah. the uh let's let's go on to the birthday problem. The birthday problem is a classic of all uh mathematics classes throughout the world, right. I think. Doesn't everybody do the birthday thing? Because it is kind of shockingly counterintuitive uh, and it yeah. had an impact on uh, Diana Sylvester. Who'd like to take that one? Um, so the the birthday problem is about um, how you know how many people you need to put in a room to have a fifty percent chance of them sharing a birthday, and the answer is uh, very small. It's twenty six, twenty three, twenty three. I think it's twenty three. Yeah. And um, uh, which is very counterintuitive. but the reason is because um, what's important here is not the number of people, but the number of pairs of people. Because sharing a birthday corresponds to a pair of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, if you ask the question now, how many people do I need to put in a room for them to match a specific birthday, like the 1st of January? then the answer is, is much bigger, is to 150 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So you have to realize that those questions are actually completely different from one another. Yeah. Matching a specific birthday or just having, you know, having um, whichever um, birthday in common. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, the Diana Sylvester case is um, um, so it's a it's a murder that happened a very long time ago in the in the seventies, and uh, the murder was never caught. But the um, the file did contain um, a sperm sample from the murderer, and um, many years later, when after DNA analysis had started, uh, you know, had started existing, um, they decided to reopen this case and test the sperm sample um, against their their database of sex offenders. This was all in California, and. Um, the the sperm sample from the file was very degraded. So a normal, you know, a good quality sperm sample has 13 pairs of peaks that you would compare it to any other sample on. And this one had only five full full pairs and then some, maybe um, an, a half of another one. Um, and there are probabilities associated to degraded samples like this. So um, for example, a sample um, that's only uh, has only five pairs of peaks. Uh, the probability is about one in a million that you would find a person who matched that sample on those five pairs. So obviously, when you have only five pairs of peaks, you have no idea if you find a match. You have no idea if it would actually match on the remaining pairs of peaks. The only thing you know is if it matches on those particular pairs of peaks. Mm-hmm. And so they ran it on the database. And they did find a match. And this match was um, an old man who had been convicted for a few other rapes um, back in the 1970s. Uh, but he was now very old and he you know, was adamant that he had, hadn't done it. And he sort of, they found pictures of him at that time. He sort of matched the description of the murderer that had been made, but sort of didn't as well. And there wasn't basically much evidence apart from the fact that his, the five peaks of the murderer matched five of his peaks. Um, and um, the, that the, the probability of that happening happen was estimated to be about one in a million. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a big argument between the defense team and the prosecution team because the, the defense team had read these studies that... Um, well, about um, people having matching DNA profiles in big databases. And the studies had found that actually there were, there were quite a lot of people matching on, you know, as, much, as many as 9, 10, or 11 peaks who weren't related at all, but were still matching. And um, the, the defense took this to mean that the, the estimated random map properties, so the, the properties that the FBI has, were matching on a smaller number of peaks were actually completely wrong and that the one in a million was actually a completely wrong uh, probability. And the, the mistake they were making there was exactly the birthday problem because, of course, if you have a big database uh, matching, you know, having two, two people, two profiles matching, it's not at all the same as running a specific profile, profile through the database and finding a match to that profile. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the birthday problem. So when they were saying that the the probabilities, the random match probabilities were wrong, they were actually misunderstanding what what was happening, you know, which question of the birthday problem they Mm -hmm. were um, having to deal with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say this this one, I think, has to do with people misunderstanding um, nonlinear phenomena. That is, they mm -hmm. don't they don't they don't quite get. 
things that don't go in a stepwise fashion. Yeah, this is actually one of the most counterintuitive of all problems, I yeah. think. Yeah, no, I think that's right. But it's the pairs that is the thing. Yeah. Not, yeah, and the pairs increase. Yeah, pairs is the thing, right? Very quickly as the, as the, as the number goes up. Exactly. Yeah, but that's hard to, that's sort of hard to put yeah. in your mind, you know, it's just hard. So to, there's so many pairs in yeah. even a small population. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think this is, it kind of confuses me in a certain sense until you realize that the unit is the pair. Right, right. the number right. of pairs increases really quickly as right. you add individuals, then, you yeah, know, then I think that, that it makes a little bit more sense. Uh, yeah, that, that one. Yeah, that, that's a that's a very that's a very that's a very tough one, and it is counterintuitive. So let's move on to um, number six. I liked your this is a, a Simpsons paradox. I liked your description mm-hmm. of the University of California Berkeley. I was a uh, graduate student at the University of California Berkeley, and I'm going uh, to tell you it is not paradise, not, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> In no because way you is have it paradise. You. It looks like paradise from the outside. I've actually does, visited yeah. there more yeah. than once, and actually Coralie's been visiting there with me. Yeah. But as visitors. You agree with this, Carly? It's just amazing. Yeah, yeah it looks like yeah, it, it looks like paradise, but it's not, not at all. So <laughs> anyway, talk a little bit about Simpsons paradox and the. This is an interesting one, the Berkeley uh, sex bias case. Yeah, I, I actually love Simpsons paradox. This is one of the. I think this is one of the most amazing uh, phenomena that you get in this kind of simple statistics that can completely fool people, including mathematicians, including us. Is that. There are a lot of cases like this where you can say something that sounds like a total, total paradox, and yet it's just true. And a really simple example would be, say, uh, you might have some national kind of testing, and uh, in New York could say, um, say you have an English test, and New Yorkers would say, well, our first language speakers and our second language speak, uh, English as a second language speakers, both scored better than Nebraska's on this test. Mm-hmm. And Nebraska could say, ah, but our average score is higher than New York on this test. Mm-hmm. And that seems completely crazy that both things can be true, but they can both be true. And that there's a, it's always what you called a confounding variable earlier, because there's something else going on that you have to take into mm-hmm. account. And in the case of the test, for instance, it could be that the English as a second language speakers are far more numerous in New York than they are in Nebraska, and that even though their scores are higher than those of Nebraska, there's so many more of them, and their scores might be lower than the English native speaker scores. Mm-hmm. And that would bring the average overall average down, mm-hmm. although each group is higher. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened in the Berkeley case with sex discrimination, where they really thought that a lot of men candidates to grad school were being accepted, and very few women. And when they narrowed it down to groups, the way I just did with the the speakers of English speakers, uh, they found that in fact each group was very equal and if maybe even advantaging women. <laughs> but before they narrowed it down to groups and studied the statistics, it looked like there was a huge sex bias going on at Berkeley. And uh, the point we were making in the chapter is that Berkeley has undergone a lot of accusations of sex bias and looked into an individual case because uh, it could be that if the, these individual cases didn't happen, nobody would have suspected Berkeley of anything. Mm-hmm. So it turns out in that particular case, though, that there was just no sex bias whatsoever going on. Mm-hmm. Now, can you explain in a little more depth? I mean, one of the things that is interesting you mentioned at the, at the end of that chapter is, is this the fact of the matter is, is that very few women apply to, uh, to in this case, become professors uh, right. at, or, or to graduate school. In or to graduate school, even in, in, in certain departments like math and engineering. Right. Very few women apply. Loads of women apply in many other departments. And this is exactly the hidden variable that was skewing the whole count. The reason that fewer women were being accepted was because math and engineering 
departments accept a lot of students, but there just aren't very many applicants. Very many women, yeah. Whereas many women applicants are applying to hard to get into departments that don't accept many students like humanities. Mm-hmm. So in a way, what we ended up finding is that there is a sex bias, but it's not, you know, Berkeley, the University of Berkeley is not the one to blame. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a much more generic sex bias. There's something going on in society somewhere which is making the number of girls applying to grad school in math and engineering very low. Right. Although Coralie and I obviously studied math and loved it. Right. So right. we're not right. a good example of this. Yeah, there's some sort of self-sorting going on before that level. And that's a very deep question, but yeah. the University of California is not to blame. Not to blame for that self-sorting. Yeah, that, that's, no. that, that's, that's, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's sort of interesting, but it does raise another set of questions. Why do people sort in this way? Yeah, it's very, very interesting and complex. Yeah. Well, I know that I have a young daughter, and she, um, for whatever reason, really likes Barbie dolls and pink and, and princess dresses, and <laughs> we cannot figure it out for the life of us. <laughs> so, I think that doesn't contradict her liking math, though. No, not at all, but it's just, uh, i got to tell you, we did nothing, to, I, you know, as far as I can tell, we did nothing to encourage this, but all of a sudden it just appeared. And I was like, I don't, yeah. I don't know what's going on there, I can figure it out. Uh, I'm sure she'll be great at math. I have no doubt I about think so it. Too. <laughs> I have no doubt she'll be great at math. But with how, her parents, you know. Yeah, that's right. How this happened, I do not know. So uh, let's um, move on to the next one, which is the incredible coincidence. This is one of my favorites uh, because incredible coincidences usually aren't that incredible. Um, yes. uh, Luca de Berg, um, can you talk a little bit? Or Lucia, is that is it? Lu- Luc- yeah, Lucia. Lucia de Berg. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, so Lucia was this nurse in the Hague. Um, and she she had been present at quite a lot of um, deaths or you know incidents. Yeah, and her so her colleagues got um, very suspicious of her, and um, the the director of the hospital made this little you know um, table in Excel to try to see how probable it was that she would have been present at all these deaths and incidents just uh, by chance. And he calculated something called the p-value of the table, which, which tells you basically how, how um, likely it is to happen naturally. And he found a very, very tiny p-value. And he was like, oh my God, this can't have happened naturally. She must have killed these people. And he went on a very, very um, quick and decisive, you know, um, uh, he just took very quick action against her. So he called the police, he called the newspapers, he apologized to all the parents and stuff like that. And um, the the same the same um, operation that he had done himself was also done um, at the trial by the expert witness, who wasn't much of an expert. <laughs> and um, and so the the. They, so this expert witness calculated, once again, the p-value corresponding to all the events that Lucia had been uh, present at. And um, he found, once again, this very tiny p-value that seemed to indicate that it was, um, that it was a you know, completely unnatural thing to happen. But the, the problem was that um, the... the the whole case, nothing was clear cut in the case, and it kept changing. And no one, no one, bo- no one bothered revising the, you know, the calculation of the p-value. And so things happened like um, when, you know, when it was known that Lucia had been present at a at a death, that death was classified as not natural. But when they subsequently learned that actually she hadn't been present, it was reclassified as natural. And 
it, it was all basically is it because it has started with her being suspected um everything was viewed in that light everything was viewed in the light that she was the suspect and so nothing was viewed objectively and so the the table the excel table kept changing and no one no one ever bothered recalculating the p value mm-hmm. um you know corresponding to the new tables or anything and no one no one bothered realizing that that there didn't seem to be anything that was actually suspicious the only thing that was suspicious was what you know whether she had been present or not and the the events you know none of them had been categorized as suspicious at the time or anything so they it was all being skewed by their them thinking that she was suspicious from the get go mhm so they backfitted the data sort of unwittingly yeah, they did i i believe they did this unconsciously i really don't think they were framing her but they they did exactly what you said yeah that's right and here we have something that i think is intuitive and that is the expected result and 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 this is yeah. something we use every day you know when we flip a coin we expect if it's fair that we're going to get, basically, it's going to be 50-50 or it's going to be one and two, however you want to put it. And then when you get a run, you begin to wonder, since it's counter to the expected result, whether it's fair or not. Right. Yeah. But the counterintuitive thing is for me is, is that if you flip enough coins, you're going to get one of those runs every time. Every single time. Yeah. Yeah. So it's always going to happen that you're going to get six heads in a row if you flip if you enough. Keep yeah, if you keep right. for sure. yeah, right. So that and then that expected result, once you once once you have it firmly in your mind that it is biased or not biased, then you start to backfit the data. Yes. You jump to a conclusion about it. And then you begin to see everything in a different light. And that's what happened to this poor woman, I think. A lot of bad things came together with her. Yeah. Uh, they they multiplied they did all basically a bunch of a combination of the previous errors. They multiplied data from different hospitals. Yeah. They they did a, a lot of things against her, and then they would ask her these leading questions in court, like, um, you know, are you maybe just a bad nurse? Right. She would say, well, no, no, I'm not a bad nurse. But what they were trying to say was, maybe you were a bad nurse, and that would explain it. We could acquit you. You know, they were leading, but she 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 refused to admit being a bad nurse. Yeah. She just said, no, it happened by chance, and yeah. there was no other evidence against her that any of these patients had been murdered at all. Yeah. And what I really love about this case is one of the ones I followed uh, very closely is that she was, okay, so she was convicted to life in prison and she was reconvicted at both appeals. And she was saved by a bunch of statisticians, a bunch of university professors at the university in uh, the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, statisticians to the rescue. Yeah, yeah. See, and it's really that case that made me think they're doing something I can do something yeah, to. Forensic statistics. I like it very much. It does exist. It, it, it actually does. And um, it's going to become a household word. I, I, hope, think. I hope that it, I, I absolutely, I absolutely hope that it will. I should say that right here in Massachusetts, uh, from where I am speaking right now, we had a fellow who in one year won the lottery twice. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the, the lottery is not rigged. And everybody knows it. Right, but so, did he buy a lot of tickets? Because some people do. Yeah, he bought, a lot, he bought a lot of tickets. Yeah. yeah. Right. He, but, so, but still, he was, and, you know, it was an incredible, a true mm-hmm. coincidence, a true wacky coincidence. But if you, you know, it's yeah. going to happen. It's just going to happen. It's going to happen, gonna happen, happen sure. all the time. That's, that's, the, that's the counterintuitive part, that unlikely things will always happen all the yeah. time. Yeah. And, and, yeah, that's kind of confusing. So let's go Actually, on. What happened to Lucia with... Uh, you know, the bunch of deaths and, and incidents that she witnessed in the hospital isn't that rare. This is going to happen to a few nurses in every yeah. country. Right, right. There are a lot of nurses in a lot of hospitals. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. have to multiply by the number of nurses That's for sure. Right. So anyway, the next one, 
which I love because, you know, it's the, it's about the most American of Americans, Charles Ponzi. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and I, and I, and I say that loving America, but he, boy, is he an American. Um, uh, uh, underestimation, or as a friend of mine might say, misunderestimation. <laughs> yeah. Who would like to, who'd like to talk about that one? So I'll go for Ponzi. Ponzi is, uh, it's a very simple case and it's very famous. Uh, by now it's very famous because of Bernie Madoff and, Everybody knows what a Ponzi scheme is now. Um, it means that you convince investors that you have an absolutely fabulous investment that's going to double their money in a short time, and they rush over and give you their money, and you pay them the interest. You do double it. And the way you're doing it is obviously to get to persuade more and more investors and use their money to pay back the other guys. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of the operation is that you're always skimming money off to buy yourself a beautiful house, car, pool, diamonds, and furs, and that one day you will not be able to find enough new investors to pay back the other ones and everything will crash. And at that point you flee to the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. And this is what Ponzi was doing. And what we analyze in the chapter is that every single person who invested with him ought to have known because the the calculation is so simple. It was much simpler in those days. Madoff had a whole bunch of, you know, hedge funds, but Ponzi just had the one thing, which he wasn't doing, but it was fake. (laughs) But he said he had the one thing and he said, I will double your money every 90 days. And it's so quick to calculate that if you do that, you've got the, you know, the entire United States budget in a few years, you've got the entire United States population in a very few months. So there was no way it could go on. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, sometimes in statistics class, people will use the example of adding one nickel on top of another and then doubling them. And how long does it take to get to the moon? It actually yes. doesn't take you very it's long at all. exponential increase. Yeah. It's super fast. Right. And but people don't, it's, it's very counterintuitive. People don't, outside biologists, I think they get it. Um, um, or people, <laughs> yeah. who are, people who are having children, I think they get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's yeah, the kids go up linearly, but the trouble goes up exponentially. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, um, and, and also there's another bit of common sense here, which Americans don't often have, and that is, if a deal sounds too good to be true, it's too good to be true. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah, that's yeah. the way it is, man. I mean, like, I mean, there's a psychology to his chapter. He was just a master of the dream. You know, he really made people dream, and they really loved him. So that's how he did it. Yeah, oh, that's right. So uh, then the, 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 the next one you deal with, it, uh, mathematical error number uh, nine, is choosing the wrong model. This one is interesting. Uh, uh, Hetty Green, the great Hetty Green. Uh, yeah, Hedy um, Green. I I like this one um, a lot as well for you know um, character character reasons. Um, so Hetty was well, she was from quite a wealthy family. She had she had a, a wealthy father who was um, an investor, and he he um, taught her everything from when she was a very small child. She was his only um, uh, daughter, and he taught her everything. And she was very obsessed with money from a very young age. And, you know, she knew exactly how everything worked and she really wanted to be an investor. And, um, you know, she opened her account as soon as she could and everything. And when her father died, he left her his money, but he left it all in a trust. And um, she was very, very upset about this. And by men. Yeah, he was sort of saying that, that he didn't really think that she could deal with her own money and that she, you know, she had to have these men to deal with her money for her. Mm-hmm. And so she wanted to make sure that when her aunt from the other side of the family, her mom's side of the family, who was uh, also very wealthy and very ill, um, she wanted to make sure that when her aunt died, the same thing didn't happen again. Um, the problem is that she didn't go about it in the, in the best way because she <laughs> went to see her aunt and she sort of tried to force her to write this will and 
you know, there was lots of screaming and arguments. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, she eventually got her aunt to write a will, giving all her money to Hetty. Then Hetty went back home. Um, and then she started hearing that her aunt, who was very ill, um, had got this new doctor who was giving her lots of drugs, like laudanum. Is that yeah. how you say it? Laudanum, sure. yeah. You know, that, that they keep you in a, in a very, well, basically they're drugs. And, um, and she, she got quite upset. And then, and then she heard that um, her aunt uh, was, you know, really very much under the influence of this guy. And then she, she got a letter from the doctor himself saying that she, Hattie, was no longer welcome at the house of her aunt. And she, there wasn't really much she could do. And then when her aunt died, it came out that she had written this new, a new will, giving a lot of money to the doctor himself and to other people and leaving some money to Hetty, but also in a trust. Where the doctor was the trustee. Exactly, the doctor was the trustee. So basically everything that could have gone wrong had gone wrong. <laughs> and so Hetty was um, incredibly upset about this, and um, she went back to her aunt's house, found the old will that they had written together, and declared that actually there was a secret page to the will that no one had seen before, and the page said... Um, it had been written by Hetty because her aunt was too ill to write. And it had been written by Hetty and it said, um, this will is the last one, I, the last true one I will ever make. If I make another one, it should not be considered considered valid. I'm, I'm afraid because I'm ill and I'm afraid that people will try to take advantage of me. And then it was signed by her aunt. And no one had ever seen this, uh, no witnesses or anything. And um, Hetty presented it at, at the trial, and the, op the opposing side said that it was a fake, and that the signature was a fake. And so they, they started um, trying to prove, so on Hetty's side, that it wasn't, that the signature wasn't fake, and on, on the opposite side, that it was fake. And they had all these very, very eminent, uh, you know, experts um, helping this. It's just amazing the people who they called to the trial, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Louis Agassiz, and the most famous, all the famous professors from Harvard were actually testifying at this trial, whether they could see pencil tracings under the signature or whether, then, you know, the lines were a bit trembly, they, the way they might be if you were tracing. And, how, did the yeah. how did the brain trust, how did the geniuses do? Yeah, they were opposing each other. They were yeah. not all on the same side. The, the thing was that there was no actual of the normal proofs of tracing or anything. There so they had to, yeah, they had to find another way to prove that it was a fake. And the way they did that was by comparing. So they compared the, the signature on the secret page to the signature on the on the previous on the on the trial on the um, on all other documents. Yeah. They just got every signature of her they could find, and they compared. Um, and so the, what had happened was that the signature on the secret page was exactly the same as the signature on the document that, that the aunt had signed just before. Mm -hmm. And the accusation was trying to prove that this would be completely impossible to happen naturally. It must have happened because the signature had been traced. It was completely impossible to, you know, to make your signature be exactly the same twice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they did that by comparing the signatures, well, all the signatures they could find of the aunt and uh, seeing how similar they were. And they came up with this model to, to um, you know, to, to describe the similarity between two um, signatures. 
And the problem with this model is that it actually it actually relied on the on signatures being um, you know just random, basically. And it, it it doesn't take into account the fact that a signature can change over time. So signatures that are made close together will be more similar than you know some that were made years before, or using the same pen or being at the same table, stuff like that. It doesn't doesn't take any of that into account. And you can actually see that the model wasn't correct, the model they used, because if you compare the model to this number of, of similar signatures that they actually found, it doesn't really fit. Um, they are much more. They were actually much more similar signatures than than the model would have would have expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, no one raises at all. And so basically, they 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 said, you know, from our model, the the probability that two signatures signatures would be exactly the same is one in many millions. So it's impossible. No, billion, trillions, quadrillions, impossible. <laughs> That's what they and, said. So. So she lost her case. Yeah. She did. But she still became very rich, so. Yeah, right. And very famous. Yeah, yeah very, right. very famous at her time. Also, you know, when I, was, when I was reading it, I was wondering, like, isn't it precisely, isn't it sort of included in the definition of a signature that it's not supposed to be random? It's supposed yeah. to identify you and uniquely you? Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. The trouble was that it, this signature really was absolutely identical to uh, one of the other signatures. Yeah. So... That is a bit suspicious. Of course, we think sure. so too. We're not actually judging, you know, whether it was or not. We're just saying the math was really not that yeah, legitimate. All right, right. I got you. Okay, so the last case you deal with, number 10, the most famous of all these cases. I even interviewed a woman who wrote a book about it, uh, and that is the case of the Dreyfus Affair. Um, and you call it mathematical madness. Please please go ahead. I, did, I, yeah, was, well, I was surprised to see uh, uh, Dreyfus in the book. The thing is that the mathematics in this case is so completely over the top and just crazy that uh, we tried to just pick out two little bits of it to show some interesting uh, applications of math gone wrong. But we just picked out two little bits out of a mass of totally insane mathematical ramblings. I believe, I love the story of Dreyfus. It's just an incredible story with so many ramifications and, you know, overturns and ins and outs and unbelievable things going on. It's totally a story worth telling. But I don't think people realize how, I'm not going to say mathematics played a role in his conviction. It was the fact that nobody could understand the mathematics that played a role. So the guy who did the mathematics was one of the handwriting analysts, and he had to prove that this document that a spy had written was in Dreyfus's handwriting. That was the whole basis. And they were going to convict him for treason and send him to Devil's Island. Mm And it was all in the handwriting analysis because this was the only proof they had against him. There was nothing else. Just this document and a similar handwriting to his. And the handwriting analyst was a very, very famous and respected person, Bertillon. He had developed a way to identify criminals that was being used all over at the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries. In fact, Ponzi was caught with Bertillon's system when he fled. And he was also the first person ever to use fingerprints to catch criminals. And he was basically a great criminologist. And people really believed him. Mm-hmm. But when he tried to prove that Dreyfus's handwriting was the one of the spy document, he went nuts. And he <laughs> developed an unbelievably complicated and completely insane theory that he spouted in front of the court for like two hours. And nobody could understand it. And that played a role in the conviction. So there was no way we could explain all his ramblings. We picked out two particular instances of crazy things he said and explained them clearly. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like the, the kind of surprising thing. It wasn't like the French uh, at the end of the nineteenth and early twentieth had a weak mathematical culture. No, they had but that's just it. That's why this guy in front of you know a bunch of a military jury at court martial 
they respected him exactly yeah. for that reason. Yeah, they could have gone a lot of places and found people that really knew a lot about this, but they didn't, it I guess, do that. And he must have had an amazing charisma like Ponzi. Yeah, yeah, no, I suspect that's right. Well, yeah, that's another sad one. So um, those are the 10. Uh, you, you conclude the book by talking a little bit about um, how and whether math should be used in the courtroom, and you talk a little bit about Lawrence Tribe, uh, who says basically that it's just too confusing for normal folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and then you weigh in. What do you guys think? Well, we definitely don't believe that, right? Yeah, no, you don't. I think that's right. Why don't you believe it? I mean, some of these things are kind of hard to wrap your mind around. Well, here's here's the thing. Um, we uh, belong to a team, so what I'm going to say is not just our own personal words. It's the, the, the philosophy of the team that we're working with, which believes that mathematics should be allowed into the courtroom in a very, very controlled situations. And uh, certain reasonings, basically, essentially Bayesian reasoning. In fact, um, yeah, that's going to come up again. But uh, the thing is, if it's if the situation in which math can be used and the type of math that can be used are completely well defined in advance, and if everybody can learn them because they are really not that hard, I think that it can it can work. It's things that should be taught in high school. I really think. Mm-hmm. Very, Orly, do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I mean, it would be silly to to forget about know a whole bunch of things that could actually help with the trial just because some people you know haven't made you know haven't been taught how to understand it Mm -hmm. well i mean i quite agree with you uh one of the things that i would always argue with my historian colleagues who didn't like quantification very much is that they're already doing it they're just doing it in a folk way that is they will use quantitative language but they refuse to strenuously quantify things. So, for example, yeah. they say more or less or perhaps or it's probable that or maybe or, you know, all this language we have is a kind of it's 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 Bayesianism in our language. Mm-hmm. But but we ne- you know, people do not want to kind of take the hard look at it and try to move from what are probably pretty good intuitive notions built into the way we speak about probabilities to what we know technically about probability, which, as you say, it really isn't that complicated, especially in an era like ours. I mean, banking has done wonders for people's understanding of mathematics. Yeah, no, there's nothing here that people couldn't be studying in high school. And, in fact, I am all for a Bayes' theorem and yeah. basic ability to enter the high schools. Yeah, I mean, we use it all the time. I mean, this is the way we reason. Yeah. We live in a probabilistic universe, whether we like it or not. We use it all the time, and we make this kind of estimation and guess all the time. But, again, we often do it wrong because right. our intuition's not always right. Yeah, and that's why we probably need experts to do this. So how do we get these experts into the courtroom do we need a a, a class of um of 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 uh mathematical priestesses to <laughs> completely objective they're there they are already there what you what you have to do is very simple first they make sure your expert witnesses really are experts so not like the case of lucia de berg where they got a non-professional statistician to do the calculation and secondly have a sufficiently educated public from which you draw your jury pool to understand it i think that's all that's necessary yeah that's not going to happen in the united states <laughs> yeah. because I got to tell you, you, if you're in a jury pool and I have been, and you say you have a PhD or higher education, you're off immediately. <laughs> I tell you, I think these things should be in the high schools. I yeah. really believe this. No, I kind of, I agree. I agree with you too. So from your lips to God's ears, I want to thank you uh, both Layla and Corley for being on the show. We've been talking about uh, this wonderful book, Math on Trial, how numbers get used and abused in the courtroom. I very much encourage everybody to uh, go out and buy it. And uh, Layla and Corley, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. It was okay. a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.